Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And I'm John Harmon. On this podcast, we teach responsible Bible and Christian theology. And this is the last episode in our series on the book of Jonah. In the first episode, we started into that book, one of the shorter prophetic books towards the end of the Old Testament, at least as those books are laid out in our Bibles. And we learned that God called Jonah, a prophet in Israel, to go preach to the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh, a vicious enemy of Israel that seemed to take pride in its taste for violence and murder. Jonah found the whole thing so distasteful that he grabbed the first boat he could find headed in the opposite direction, bound for the farthest point he could get away from Nineveh. But as Jonah no doubt knew, there was no way he could escape the God of Israel. The ship found itself in a storm. Jonah had to admit that he was probably the reason for the storm and that the whole thing would go away if the crew threw him overboard and the crew does everything they can to avoid doing that. Then with no other options, they finally do it. They throw Jonah overboard and the storm stops. And as we saw in that first episode, the sailors already more than a little worried when they had heard that Jonah served the God who actually created the sea. They are duly impressed when they see that storm go away. In the second chapter, we saw what happened next after Jonah went overboard. God took over. God provided the fish to swallow Jonah. God had the fish transport Jonah to shore. And God had the fish spit Jonah up on the shore three days later. But we also see Jonah's response. Jonah thanks God for the rescue. In other words, being swallowed by a large sea creature in the middle of the storm, it doesn't sound like a good day. But Jonah recognized it for what it was, God's deliverance. And Jonah thanked God for it. In chapter 3, in our last episode, when Nineveh heard God's message of warning and hope from Jonah, Their repentance was extreme, wasn't it? It was. The story tells us that they fasted from food and water, and they even included the animals in their expressions of repentance. As we mentioned last time, that most likely wasn't a conversion to the exclusive worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Ron, I think you even spoke to that in our last episode, where they, they didn't put all their other gods aside, but they did obey Jonah's God in this particular case, and their repentance showed that God could and would save people even as wicked as them. In Jonah 3.10, which is how chapter 3 closes, it says this, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But at this point in the story where we left off, Jonah doesn't yet know this. He doesn't know the outcome because he has to wait for the 40-day period to pass in order to see what God would do. We, the readers, however, get a sneak peek. As we wrapped up with in the last episode, we already know that God is everything that Jonah feared and everything that Nineveh hoped for. This all has some more working out to do, and in chapter 4, we get the conclusion of this story and the heart of the matter. Jonah and God converse for the first time, and their conversations are more than revealing. Let's listen in. Well, as we dive into chapter four of Jonah, there's something you need to know about John. If you didn't know, he is quite literally an expert on Hebrew narrative techniques. (laughs) 
That actually is important here. Uh, John pointed out some features that did not immediately occur to me when I read through Jonah chapter four, similar to chapter three. Chapter four has two scenes. And in the first four verses, the first scene here, we actually flash forward. At this point, Jonah actually does know that Nineveh escapes. But then we're going to go into the second scene, starting in verse 5 towards the middle of the chapter. And there it flashes back from the first scene. And at that point, Jonah is still waiting to see what happens. So we have to pay attention to the literary structure of this chapter and pay attention to where Jonah is and his realization of what's happening. But we'll get to verse 5 and scene 2 shortly here. As the first scene opens in these first few verses with this flash forward, we find that the period of waiting to see what God would do with Nineveh is over. Uh, So at this point, Jonah does know, because of the flash forward, that God had spared the city, and he's not happy about it. Jonah addresses God with his complaint about how wrong this all is, (laughs) and he expresses his anger directly to God. Jonah's anger is supposed to be shocking. We're meant to see his narrow view that God should only show grace to Israel and never to Israel's enemies. In -hmm. fact, as far as I'm concerned, you've got to hear this. It's just so preposterous. So (laughs) from one of the English translations, here's what Jonah prayed. This is Jonah 4 verses 2 and 3. Jonah said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. John, this is just so breathtakingly audacious for someone (laughs) who has come face to face with the awesome power of the God of Israel. It is. It's audacious and it's extreme. It's interesting, Ron, how some of the translations have rendered verse one, where it introduces the chapter with the idea that Jonah is, and the words that's often used in translation is, he's displeased. Right. Or he's he's greatly displeased. And every time I see that in the translations, it, it, it makes me think, oh, how understated that is. Because <laughs> Jonah is far more than just displeased. He's He sees something as horrifically wrong, and he's furious about it. I mean, it comes across as, God, kill me now. <laughs> in fact, yes. Jonah says, in essence, God, I told you so. I knew this might happen if you gave Nineveh a chance. In fact, Jonah confesses that he had rejected his original assignment and fled in the opposite direction to Tarshish precisely because Nineveh might be saved if given the chance. Now, that brings up a question. How did Jonah know this? Yeah, how did Jonah know this? That is the question that we should ask at this particular point. He knew it because he knew God. God's character was revealed to Israel long ago, and Jonah actually highlights that revelation by making direct reference to the way that God described his own character to Moses in the book of Exodus. Jonah says, using the exact language, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So this is how God is. This is God's character and 
Jonah doesn't like it. Not only can he not stand Nineveh, but at this point, now he can't stand God. Don't miss the irony of all of this. Jonah, who had been dealt with graciously by his merciful God, is upset with God for being God, for being who God is. He's furious with God because God continued to be who Jonah knew God to be, even outside of Israel. So the tone is just accusatory. He accuses God of, all things, acting like God. And there's no way around the fact that as we go into verse 3 here, Jonah is going into full tantrum mode. He gives that order to God, just take my life from me now, for my death is better than my life. Remember that Jonah was thankful he didn't die in the ocean when he voluntarily, and essentially as far as he was concerned, suicidally, goes into the sea so that the ship he was on wouldn't sink in the storm and kill the sailors on board. But apparently rescue is okay for Jonah He's just not happy about it for Nineveh now. (laughs) The the absurdity of this is rising. This situation is getting more and more ridiculous, and God puts a fine point on it by asking a forceful rhetorical question. He asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah is angry, but he's angry without a good reason, and he'd rather die than see God save someone else. This is remarkable. We've been wondering all along, Ron, as we've read through this book so far, what's going on with Jonah? Where is his heart in all of this? Did his experience in the fish and in receiving a second chance from God, did any of that change him? Yeah, I remember I was arguing that Jonah sacrificed himself to save the sailors. He was clearly thankful for his own rescue by God at sea. So I wanted to say, hey, maybe this guy isn't so bad after all. (laughs) Well, chapter four answers that question decisively. Jonah at this point, we can see plainly, has only dug in on his stubborn refusal to accept that God loves and is concerned with everyone, and he wants no part of it. In fact, he'd rather not even live to see it. Of course, God's question here is not only for Jonah. We're to engage that question too. Is it right for Jonah to be angry? The obvious answer is no, but then we have to look at ourselves and ask, how do we respond when we see God's redeeming grace in the lives of others that we feel don't deserve it? Do we make judgments about who is worthy of God's favor and then resent it when God chooses to give it? Yeah, so obviously if we do, then we're just like Jonah. We're, we're soaking in this absurd hypocrisy and an unrealistic expectation that the unchangeably gracious and compassionate God who's slow to anger and abounding in love will abandon his character to suit our biases. God will be good to me. Just don't be good to that guy over there. <laughs> but it gets even better as we come into the second scene of the chapter, as we get to verse five, and that's the final scene of the book. Scene two of chapter four, which begins at verse five, starts with this. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. This is a flashback to give us some background to what had happened before Jonah got angry 
and told God to end his life. We're back in that window of time between Nineveh's repentance and Jonah's awareness of the outcome. After Jonah witnessed that Nineveh responded to God, he left the city and made camp to the east. Here's the first question. What's he really doing out there? He wants to see the show as God destroys Nineveh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't yet know how God will finally deal with Nineveh, but he doesn't go back to Israel. Jonah is setting up outside of the city, hoping for a full-out Sodom and Gomorrah rerun. (laughs) All right. As he waits, God once again uses the forces of nature to affect Jonah and provides a leafy plant to give Jonah shade and some comfort from his exposure to the sun. John, if you don't mind, there's a great aside that we can have here, and it has all to do about this stinking plant (laughs) and how you translate it, which I gather you have indicated is particularly difficult (laughs) to Mm -hmm. know just exactly what the Hebrew means there. Even in English, I know some of our translations will say a vine, some of them will just say a plant. And it turns out there was a time in the Latin-speaking world, especially the early Latin-speaking Christian community, that there was a massive disagreement over this. And it goes to show that some things don't ever change. (laughs) There was an old Latin translation of the Bible, especially on the Old Testament side. It came from the Septuagint. So if you don't know the history there, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, they were translated into Greek even before the time of Christ. And that translation was incredibly important. It was called the Septuagint. Well, oh, 500, 600 years later, as Christians are sorting out, they they want to be able to read what's there. The translation they do is not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek. It was called the Old Latin because it was done early on in Latin Christianity. And it didn't age well. As we get to the fourth (laughs) century, we start finding out that we now have a church Latin, if you will, already. And it's not the Latin that everybody else is speaking. So one of the massive achievements was that someone by the name of Jerome came along, translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Latin, much as we do in our English translations now. The irony was that this was Jerome translating what was called the Vulgate. The irony is the Vulgate itself became so overwhelmingly important that it was literally the Bible of the Western church for a thousand years, Mm. (laughs) long past the point that it still represented what people were speaking. But at the time it was translated, it was a new thing. And it turns out that Jerome translated this plant as something like ivy or a vine. Well, apparently the old Latin called it a gourd. And best we can tell, in certain churches, they knew this by heart, and they must have had a theology of the gourd. Because (laughs) when Jerome's translation came out, in certain places there was a complete revolt. And a letter that Augustine writes to Jerome He's begging for several things, several things that follow from what Augustine's asking. One is he's asking Jerome, hey, won't you translate it from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew, (laughs) which uh, seems backwards to us these days, Uh although Augustine has his arguments for it. But he also brings up this, and he even says that a pastor, a presbyter at a church was just about thrown out of his church 
because he read Jerome's translation instead of the old Latin. <laughs> and mm. apparently it got so crazy that they even involved the local Jewish population in trying to settle the dispute. And that didn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really curious how sometimes we can get hung up on individual pieces that don't mean a whole lot. And I'm willing to bet, John, that you would say the identity of this plant probably doesn't matter to interpreting the book of John. Yeah, it is It is really not necessary to have a fully developed theology of the gourd uh, <laughs> in order to work successfully through the book of Jonah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> what does matter is that when the plant shows up, Jonah loved the plant. As we'd expect at this point, when God does something for Jonah, Jonah's happy about it. And in fact, the text tells us exactly that. God's mercy continues to be good for Jonah, But Jonah absolutely does not want to see that mercy extended to Nineveh. And again, the God of the world, the creator of the world, the Lord of nature, intervenes and provides a worm that killed the plant and took away the shade that God had given to Jonah. And so Jonah was once again in the hot sun with the scorching wind blowing, and he gets faint and says he wants to die. So the question comes up, why does he want to die? It can't be just because he was uncomfortable. God asks him point blank, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, it's right. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. (laughs) Notice the sequence here. Jonah was uncomfortable. Then he gets comfortable because God provides the plant. Then he's uncomfortable again, but no worse off than he was before when God takes away the plant. But this time he's also mad because God killed the plant. And as you've already said, John, we can't miss the absolute absurdity here. Jonah is furious that God killed his plant, but he's still hoping God fully intends to wipe out Nineveh and kill all the people there. (laughs) Yes. Remember, given where we are in the story in this flashback now, that Jonah is not yet angry about Nineveh, because he's still hoping they're going to be wiped out. But he's angry that he's lost the plant that God had mercifully given him in the first place. Right. The plant is not a taunt. It's not a harassment for Jonah. God isn't toying with Jonah. The plant is a lesson. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, anyway, that the dialogue isn't going anywhere. (laughs) The the conversation between God and Jonah, they're not connecting. Uh, And this object lesson, I think, is maybe one way to put it. Right. comes into the picture. God has Jonah right where he wants him before the news about what will happen to the city actually hits. If it was wrong for the plant to be struck down, how can it be right for Nineveh to be struck down? God was only doing for Nineveh what Jonah insisted that he, Jonah, had the right to do for a plant. Jonah wants the plant to live. God wants Nineveh to live. But then God drives it home with another rhetorical question that actually ends the book. He notes that Jonah cared so much for a plant, and and, and a plant that he had no investment in. He had nothing (laughs) to do with cultivating it. He didn't plant it and and nurture it, and he only had it for a day. But it seemed to, to mean so much to him that he wanted to die when it was gone. Jonah cared deeply for that plant. God asks him, Should I not have concern for the important city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many animals as well? That's how the book ends. If Jonah can care about a plant, can't God 
care about a city full of people who don't know God and who aren't making God-pleasing choices? Is your plant, Jonah, more important than they are? Can God not care for them even if you don't? That's a remarkable way to end a book, isn't it? (laughs) That question just hangs there. It hangs there because it's not only for Jonah to answer, but for every reader to answer too. Do we care about what God cares about? Or do we resent mercy and compassion and grace when God chooses to show them to someone other than us? John, at this point, I'm just noticing that there are two points, one in each scene, where God demands of Jonah, what right do you have to be angry? So in the first scene where Jonah now knows what's happening to Nineveh, God demands, what right do you have to be angry? And the question just sits there. There's no response. And then we do the flashback as if to give us the context for all this. God gives Jonah the object lesson with the plant. And at the end of it all, God asks, what right do you have to be angry? At which point then Jonah had said, I have every right to be angry. Mm-hmm. So it does seem that that question is a common theme here. Yes, it is. The The fact that we get some repetition here, we get some parallel between the two scenes is, is actually very important. This question about, yeah, what right do we have to sit in judgment over what God is doing? What right do we have to be angry about a merciful outcome that God desires and that God brings to the people of the world? The fact that we see this twice almost gives us the impression that it's looping back on itself and highlights the fact that, you know what, as far as Jonah's concerned, this is going nowhere. (laughs) Got it. That's a really good question because all of this just adds to the challenge of this book for us, the readers. This is a challenging book that teaches us something important and that calls for a response from us. It pushes us to ask, are we like Jonah? Mm. And it pushes us to recognize why God acted toward Nineveh in the way that God did. It's because that's who and how God is. That's God's character. And God acts in accordance with God's character, always. And that character is love, compassion, grace, mercy, justice, and righteousness. We shouldn't gloss over the fact either that Jonah's theology, what he believes, is orthodox. He has it right when it comes to what he knows and believes. The problem is that he just doesn't like it. (laughs) And that creates an issue because there's a rift between his head and his heart, between knowing his theology and living his theology. That's an important observation, I think, and it's a further challenge for us. It's far from unthinkable that we can know things that are correct and right and also be arrogant in those things. We can have good theology and at the same time, like Jonah, be in rebellion against God. Knowledge and humble spiritual obedience are not the same thing. We need both. John, I really want to emphasize that last statement there, though we need both. Mm -hmm. We do need to know what is true. We need to know who God is. Get that wrong and bad things will follow. Nevertheless, as you say, it's not enough just to know. Like Jonah, I can believe something that's true about God and not like it. 
in these contexts, I really think we're dealing with multiple things that are often denoted by the English word faith. That word sometimes refers to the content of what we believe, but it also designates just as much that we trust God, Mm. that we trust God will do what's right, that we accept what God does and still love God. And we absolutely must have both. It does us no good to have the head knowledge without the trust. And it does us no good to have the trust without knowing what we trust in or whom we trust. This is often pitched in the category of dead orthodoxy, and certainly dead Mm. orthodoxy is a danger. But I sometimes worry that the people who talk about dead orthodoxy really want to replace that with no orthodoxy or something that's <laughs> right. heterodox. And the yes. solution to dead orthodoxy is not no orthodoxy. The solution mm. to dead orthodoxy is a live orthodoxy, a spirit-filled orthodoxy that also expresses itself in love of God and obedience to God. Amen to that. Jonah teaches us so many things. Jonah also teaches us that no one, no matter how far away from God that person seems to us, is beyond God's redemptive reach. Jonah didn't share God's concern for Nineveh, but God was unmoved. In fact, (laughs) God showed his concern for Jonah in challenging him to come around to God's perspective. And that's our challenge as well. How will we respond when God chooses to do what we don't understand or what we disapprove of, including showing mercy to those whom we believe deserve judgment. As I hear you say that, John, I can't help but think about how divided, unfortunately, our society in the United States is right now. You could easily hear someone say, there's no way I can talk to those people over there. Well, Mm. whoever I might be thinking about, if I say that, Jonah seems to be telling me, you better be ready (laughs) to see God show them mercy. Yeah, that gets to the heart of where a lot of us feel we are today. Who is that person? That person that if God gave me the opportunity, like Jonah, to offer them hope in God, I'd say, "Ah, I pass. (laughs) (laughs) Who is that person? Well, this book highlights grace. It reminds us that It's not where we are in terms of our behavior that saves us. It's grace. God comes after us because we're lost. We're in trouble. And it should excite us that God shows grace to others, regardless of who they are. God yearns to forgive. As Robert Frost famously summed it up in his poetic drama, A Mask of Mercy, after reading this book, we, like Jonah, simply, quote, can't trust God to be unmerciful. (laughs) Wow. So the book very intentionally leaves us, the readers, with a choice. Will we copy Jonah's hatred or will we see the world as God sees it? And that wraps it up, not only for this episode, but for this series on Jonah. We're not planning to jump immediately into another series right now. Our next three episodes will be an interlude of sorts. We'll probably release some standalone episodes where we'll deal with a few short segments of one of the Gospels, maybe Mark. We release episodes every two weeks. So after three episodes or six weeks from now, we'll be starting a new series and we will announce that series as we get a little closer to the release date. So stay tuned. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening.